I never grew up thinking big. And here you have to think big. And thinking big is almost a requirement to be successful. Because, you know, if you first you think it and then you see it. First you think it and then you act it. But without thinking it, you cannot act it. So you always have to force yourself to think way bigger than you had originally thought or imagined when I was in Ecuador. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grip. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I thought it was a drill, the fire thing. Was that it? It was. It was. I asked odd. the fire guys outside. They said it was a pipe burst or yeah, something. Apparently, a, a truck hit the side of the building and, and broke up and broke a pipe. <laughs> the, the, something happens every year here. You know, we're in the middle of downtown Seattle. Dude, it's stunning. Wherever we are is stunning. I have no idea where in Seattle we are, but I just walked over here from the hotel. It was like a 30-minute walk, and it was gorgeous. The Puget Sound and being close to the ocean is just a different feeling. And this is the best time of the year to be when in Seattle. When did you move here? I went to a business school in 2001 and, you know, business school starts in September in 2001 is when 9-11 happened. So coming out of business school, I had the promise of the land, the milk and honey and all the jobs and all the things that happen after you go to a good business school. And none of that was true for me. A lot of the companies were shutting down or downsizing because the economy was wobbly. One of the few companies that was just hiring hand over fist, anybody that was reasonably smart was Amazon. And it was such a boom hiring for Amazon that they sent some of their best people. You know, it was Jason Child who interviewed me. And, you know, he became the CFO of a bunch of companies, including Groupon, et cetera. And then I ended up working in the team that was led by Colin Breyer. And then eventually halfway through my first year, Jassy took over for Colin and they swapped jobs. Like one became Bezos' shadow and the other one became the head of associates and web services and so that's what brought me out to Seattle. What, what year was that? 2003. Where'd you move from? Boston. Okay. And then from where are you from originally? I'm from Ecuador. And when did you move from Ecuador to the States? I think it was 97. How old were you? 20 years old. 20. Did you speak English? I could write better than I could speak. So the, it was very frustrating because I actually transferred schools to the U.S., and it was really hard for me to integrate myself into the young society of a bachelor because I couldn't just have the same facility with words I would have in Spanish. I could write well, I could do math, I could do all these other things, but I couldn't pick up a girl at the bar for, to save my life. I couldn't say anything funny. Where, where, like did you, it, where did you land when you came to the States? You, Boston? Oh, my part of entry was uh, Newark, New Jersey. What did you think when you came here? Honestly, did you come by yourself? Were you come with your parents? I came by myself. My parents had moved to Venezuela. So they offered me for me to go to the top school in Venezuela. This is before Venezuela got into chaos. Venezuela was a very rich country. So they said, you know, you can either go to Venezuela or you can go to the U.S. And I figured that if I stay in Ecuador or Venezuela, I, I was going to end up supporting software that somebody else built. I was going to support IBM, Oracle or Microsoft or SAP software. Whereas if I move to the U.S., I'm going to be writing the software for somebody. And I really wanted to write the software for somebody. So I decided to just take the jump and, and move to move to the U.S. What did you think when you first got here? Was you know, it what you thought? Uh, no, I was expecting Baywatch and I didn't get Baywatch in New Jersey. So I, <laughs> as you're landing into Newark, I don't know if you landed into oh, yeah. Newark, it's an industrial complex of all the things, like all the shipbuildings and the refineries and like the houses are on top of each other and you just land in this like, it feels like a production facility of like vast proportions. Yeah, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. But the good thing is that everybody speaks Spanish. So I almost felt at home, like the Ecuadorian population immigrants in that area of New Jersey is large and the Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Salvadorians, Nicaraguans, it's just all sorts. My parents were worried that I was never going to speak English because at school, as long as you can write and, and sort of like do the math, you're good. So I didn't have to speak for that much unless I wanted to go out and party and have fun. Mm -hmm. That was the impetus really to really pick up some English because otherwise, you know, Spanish just doesn't. That's it. so funny. Why did your parents send you here? Like what were they doing? My dad just recently had gotten a job with a Canadian company that 
moved him from Ecuador to Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, his salary you know, went up and he was able to afford paying for my school here. Got it. That's when he gave me the choice. You can stay where you are. I was going to, back then in Ecuador, in Guayaquil, the, the city where I'm from, Yeah. there's only one good technical school. It's really hard to get in. Kind of yeah. like IIT, equivalent yeah. of India. I was in it. I was in the track doing my degree in engineering. And my dad said, well, you can stay there or you can come and, and go to Venezuela. Venezuela has another really good technical school called Simón Bolívar that is incredible. So I was thinking of doing that. Or you can go to the U.S. and we'll pay for that. And I decided to come to the U.S. because, again, I wanted to write the software, not to patch it. When you were coming into the States and acclimating, what did you feel? Was it excited or like helpless? Did you feel daunted or that this is like the actual land of opportunity? What was 20-year-old Manny, how was he taking in all these inputs? You couldn't even speak yeah, the language. It, it, yeah, it, it, it was. But there is so many success stories here. And it was so interesting because here you can be whoever you want to be. You know, where I'm from, you have to be from a good family to shot for the job or shot for the opportunity. Here, it doesn't matter. You put in the effort, you put in the work, you outgrind everybody else and you get it. And it was just incredible. The opportunity was everywhere. Like, it didn't matter where you went. There is opportunity here. Just think about this. Like, there is no chance in hell that as an Ecuadorian, you know, from middle, lower class, that I would be able to start a company, raise almost half a billion dollars, run it all the way to a quarter billion dollars and and think of even an IPO. Like that just doesn't exist. Here is a chance. You have your chance, you have your shot, everybody else does. And you just take it. So to me, it was, I came here and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to become an engineer and maybe I'll continue on. And my dad was a professor and his father was a professor. I'm like, maybe I'll become a professor. You know, I'll be a professor. I'll have a white picket fence house, you know, in a nice, quiet neighborhood and get old and have two kids, two cars and a second home or whatever. And then as I was doing all those things, I'm like, why am I thinking so small? And that has always been my challenge, actually, being in in, in the U.S., is that I, I never grew up thinking big. And here you have to think big. And thinking big is almost a requirement to be successful because, you know, if you're first, you think it and then you see it. First, you think it and then you act it. But without thinking it, you cannot act it. So you always have to force yourself to think way bigger than you had originally thought or imagined when I was in Ecuador. Are your parents still alive? Yeah. What do they think? I don't think my mom knows what I do. Actually? I, 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 I she think... sees your name like in headlines and stuff, right? A little bit. I mean, she's not as plugged in. You may know that she's Russian. And my mom always thinks that, you know, I could do better. You know, going to school, she always thought I could do better at math. And I could do better at languages. And I could be better in, with my manners. And I could, like, everything is I, you, I could do better. And she still thinks I could do better. She still thinks that I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. My dad is very proud of me. My, my, my dad is a gentle soul. And, you know, he just wishes the best for all his children and, you know, wishes them success. And, you know, he's proud of me. And So this company, Outreach... Last raised valuation at $4.2 billion, raised $500 million of funding, whatever valuations mean anymore. Right, but right, nonetheless, right. like it's doing very well, to your point. It's, it's amazing. It's one of the darlings of Seattle, which is probably weird to hear, isn't it? Like, <laughs> it is it, weird to hear. It's weird. It is um, weird to hear. Knowing what you know now, like knowing everything that you know now, yeah. would you do it again? Oh, in a heartbeat. Honestly? In a heartbeat. So I would, let me think. I am not a great startup guy. Straight up, like I struggle in the early days. I struggle with the growth hacks. I struggle with the sort of like the fake until you make it. I struggle with it being very small. As I'm learning, I'm becoming better at what I do. The early days are hard. And like outreach was especially hard because myself and my co-founders, we're all unproven founders, unproven, I'm an unproven CEO. We don't get the benefit of the doubt. So you know, we had to run outreach on one month to month of payroll tops for two years. And that was hard. You know, like having to go to sleep with that in your mind of like, if you don't make money this month, you may not see another month. It's a hard way to live. And I, I wouldn't go through that again. I will go through the exercise of building a category from scratch, of focusing on somebody's need and solving a problem for them. It's so rewarding. Like one of the things that I, I missed the most of the early days was like, this joy of discovery, a problem that was there to solve it and nobody solved it and be the first one to solve it and see the smile on people's faces and people telling me that, you know, we changed their lives and that they're making more money, they're going home earlier, that the company's making more money. Like that was incredible. And we were so close to the customer or I was so close to the customer back then because we were selling or supporting or building or successing, whatever that was, it was all in a day's work. Now as a CEO, it's more, you know, inspiring other people to do it, you know, setting goals and strategies, et cetera. But, you know, I try to go back to those early days when, whenever I can and taking a support ticket or some other way. 
But that's what I miss the most. And, and that's what I would do again, the feeling of like solving somebody's problem that hasn't been solved before. And like that energy that comes from that person when you when it's released after you solve the problem, it's just incredible. Yeah, but can you go back to the discovery of product market fit without the pain that comes in the search of, of finding it? Yeah, that, that I don't know that I would. Yeah. That I don't know that I would. But why do you think you struggle with small? Tell me more about that feeling. Do you actually think you're more of a big company scale person? Like you're more process oriented once there's a flicker of the flame that you can actually get it to burn? No, and this is a part that is interesting. It's like you don't, you're not really scaling until you're really done crossing the chasm, mm-hmm. you know, between the early adopters and the early majority. And that's hard too, but it's hard in a different way. It's hard in that you have to prioritize, you have to strategize, but the early days are different in that the problem with the product market fit is that the amount of false positive is mind boggling. And there is no good literature out there to figure out what is true product market fit. So we were in this panic mode all the time of like, do we really have product market fit? Even when we cross a million dollars, do we really have product market fit? Or do we just really sell into somebody who just, you know, was willing to give us money? And that question, like, it's gnawing at you every day. You know, even today, you know, it's still in the back of my head, but early is life of debt. If you don't have product market fit, you're done. There's no second chance. Here, if we launch a product and the product didn't quite make the landing, you know, we'll reiterate on the product and we have the funding and the momentum and whatever, and we'll sell something else in the meantime. But early on, if you don't have product market fit, you're done. And it gets harder as you get incrementally bigger because now you're banking on it. Now people give you funding based on it. So if you think that your product market fit is not solid, all of a sudden you, your clock is ticking down. So one of the most rewarding experience, and it's so painful because it was one of the most, it was the aha moment of the product market fit was when we sold to this company, a small startup in New York, and they put the entire team on outreach. And outreach went down between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock their time. And we get a call from the VP of sales saying, outreach is down. I just sent my entire team to lunch early. It better be back up by the time they're back from lunch. And we have to drop everything and scramble. And we had, I don't know, 15 customers. We lost this one. Everybody else finds out that outreach went down and like, we're done. So like we're dealing with an existential crisis at the moment, right? Like outreach went down because something happened and we have to restore the instance. And because outreach is a workflow, we have to restore the instance and all the pieces of the workflow as they were laid out right before they went to lunch, so right before it went down. So it's not just restoring the application, it's restoring all the pieces where they were, sort of like in the middle of the air, like putting all the balls in the middle of the air mm-hmm. and then let them run. So we're panicking, we're working as fast as we can, like sweating bullets. And then, you know, the half hour after they came back from lunch, we get the application got back and running. All the pieces are in place. In the background, we're running tests to make sure it doesn't go down, that all the pieces are there, that there is not, no surprises, right, throughout their day. So, like, we're spending the rest of the afternoon, in our afternoon, making sure that their, their instance is running spotless. So they go home. You know, we're done with that emergency. And we're all swivel with chairs. Like, oh, you know, I think there were, like, five of us in the company. And we're like, that was incredibly hard. That, that was shit, man. Like, your heart just, like, stopped. And Kinzer, who, who, Andrew, uh, who you met, was like... Your co-founder. Yeah, my co-founder was like, that is the evidence that is product market fit. When somebody calls you and tells you they can't do their job because you went down, that right there is product market fit. It's not somebody paying you. It's somebody losing their mind because your application flickered. That's when we finally exited this like anxiety as to whether we're valuable or not. And it took that moment for us to really realize that when you take the product away it's a real test. When do you feel like you crossed the chasm from early adopters to broad market? We haven't. We're in the middle of it. You're in the middle of it now. My entire category is in the middle of it. And this is a, the challenge with new categories is that in established categories, like say databases or ERPs or CRMs, the chasm has already been crossed. You're asking people to move to a, a new level of efficiency. So the chasm is a, a lot smaller. The early adopters will be there, but the early majority is easier. You know, those are the pragmatists. And the pragmatists already use something. And all you're saying is use this other thing, which is 10x better. And boom, you get them to convert. So it's not that much of a a mental leap to go from like on-prem CRM to cloud CRM, to on-prem whatever, to cloud whatever, to really bad HRMS, to a really good HRMS. But when you have a whole new category and you're changing the way work is done, you have to convince them of two things. One, that they need to work on this new platform and B, that you're the winner. So your chasm is twice as big in my mind because you, you have to do that much. And so the good news is that, you know, your early adopter momentum is really strong, but you're getting to that majority of the pragmatists is twice as hard. And that's a trick. One of the things that it feels to me like a lot of CEOs are struggling with right now mm-hmm. 
is they've reached this level of scale where it's supposed to be easier. You know, you're told that, hey, if we're thinking about even maybe going public in the next couple of years, if we're at a couple hundred million of revenue, if we have this big, beautiful office on the water with all of these people, <laughs> the thing that I feel like people are struggling with, tell me if this is, relates or not, is the idea of scarcity that you had in the beginning of outreach where it was desperation. Yep. I feel like it's very hard when an organization has become so big to continue to instill that level of vigor when you release a second and a third product, yep. when it has a soft landing. And that's not a knock on anything except for just the way that the systems run. You have a safety net now. Right. It's buoyed by the core of the business. Yes. It always is. And people aren't going to lose payroll. The company's not going to go down. Right. There's no existential threat that everybody feels yep. to the company. It's a much broader set of people. You don't know everybody's name anymore. That seems to me like a lot of organizations are struggling with that. I can't speak for other people's organizations. I can tell you that founder organizations do have that existential crisis. The few founders that I know, we talk about that. And how do we maintain that maniacal focus on the customer? What made us successful is that exact maniacal focus on the customer and making sure that we are addressing the problem and then testing that we're addressing a good problem and that the problem is worth solving and the problem is mission critical and that the problem really delivers on the promise and all that. And the moment that you start going down the path of creating tighter defined roles that you need to scale, the quintessential problem you will have is that the people in the tighter defined role will lose context of the whole and will lose context of where we're going. And there's no easy answer to it other than keep telling the story over and over again and give people context. Great leadership and great management is about making sure that you have the purpose, the structure, and the accountability right at all levels. And that works. But that sounds great in theory. It's really hard to do in practice. And as you create layers, and the layers have very tightly defined roles, getting them to see and act with the same urgency that you did when you were small is both hard to do and I think it's unrealistic. You know, at some point, people want to take a job because the company is stable, because you have, you know, you're growing and- You have benefits. You have benefits and, 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 stability. People, and people have fun and stability, et cetera. Every uh, advisor and investor and board member that I talk to, there's no other way to scale. Because at some point, like, you know, there is a large group of people out there who just want a regular job. And, you know, nine to five, they're very competent at what they do. They're very needed in the organization. But, you know, they want to come and do the thing that they're good at. They want to go do payroll. They want to do customer success with mm -hmm. the mid-market. They want to do sales operations. They want to do, you know, software development. They're good at what they do and you need them. But you can't expect from them the same urgency that you had when you were small. It feels to me like you have the same fire in your belly that you had. I mean, I didn't know you then. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time imagining you had more of a fire in your belly then. <laughs> I was just talking with uh, Chris Dagnan. Yeah. Uh, you yeah, know Chris? Snowflake. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's great. I love him. And um, I was having beers with him, and he's been at Snowflake since literally like zero revenue. He, he was a rep. Yeah, yeah he, he exactly. took a step down to yeah, take that job. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And he's been the CRO across everybody. And I'm like, dude, he's like foaming at the mouth. He's so excited still. And I'm like, dude, how could you possibly, after this long, after this much of a fight, even if it's Snowflake, feel this energized. He's reinvigorated himself with new challenges yep. in a way that was really refreshing to me, but also where I was like, oh, you need to find new hills to climb yep. at these different levels of scale. Right. Do you feel like as you're crossing the chasm, I look behind me right now, there's a whiteboard basically. It's not even a whiteboard. It's literally the room. <laughs> it's, it's the wall of the room full of AI diagrams and architectural flows. Yes. Like, are these the new hills that you're excited right now by? When you go to the future and you see what's there, you can't live with yourself until you find that future. I have mentally traveled there and I see that there is no world in which reps don't have an assistant the way that coders do right now. There's no world in which a lot of what a seller does that is mundane and drab gets not done by a machine. And I'm sure that a lot of other people have seen the same future. Like I'm not alone on this. And if we don't rush to get it, somebody else will. And now finally all the pieces for it are there 
Before you have to invent some of this engineering. Now you don't have to invent all this engineering. All the engineering, has a, like the part, you're in a huge junkyard full of pristine pieces of machinery. You just have to go find the right ones and put it together and then take it to market as soon as you can. Whoever does that first win and whoever wins this market will win all of it. So we are in a battle to be the next standard for how you deploy a sales team. And the future is for us to win or for us to lose, but it all depends on our own execution to go get it. Can you give maybe a 30 seconds or less, like what does outreach do? The name of the category is sales execution platform. And what it does is really is that just like the way you think of service now doing workflows for IT or for HR or whatever, there's workflows in sales too. There's workflows for how do you create pipeline. There's workflows for how you qualify the pipeline. There's workflows on how you run a meeting and what do you do with the meeting after. There's workflow for qualifying the deal, committing the deal, and forecasting the deal. All those things are workflows. The more that you keep that workflow within a bound and within an observable platform and with measures, the tighter and the more that you can optimize that workflow and you can make every rep produce at a baseline level. And then you can take that level and monotonically move it up into the right over time. If you don't have a workflow, then you're at the whim of the individual performance of somebody very talented versus somebody very not so talented. Revisiting the stuff that I'm looking at on the wall right now, mm-hmm. you're all over it. All of your competitors, everyone's all over everyone's it. Everyone's all over it, yeah. In fact, I am shocked at how quickly everyone's all over it, including incumbents, mm-hmm. maybe especially incumbents, right? We're all over it. Yeah. And the one thing I have yet to see personally yeah. is an AI solution that is actually a net new, game-changing, company-changing product yep. that someone is delivering. I'm not talking about ChatGPT. I'm talking about in a actual tool yep. where I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe that happened. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so maybe help me understand, is there a pressure? When you see the future, do you see the future in a way that you feel pressure to get it out now so that you don't fall behind? Or do you see a world where this will fundamentally and radically actually change the way that your your business runs? I see both. So does the question make sense, by the way? Yeah, yeah, no. So for instance, like I've been talking to my head of engineering about this. Like, you know, Uber wouldn't be Uber if there wasn't a mobile phone revolution. And then all of a sudden there is the killer app that can only work on the phone that it makes everything else make sense. So all of a sudden, transportation is right here and food delivery is right here and everything is right here. What is the equivalent applications that is going to be powered, that uniquely powered by this new AI revolution that is just going to change Correct. completely the way that everything does? And I think to answer that question, you need to dig in a little deeper. So for instance, imagine a world in where you wake up and outreach tells you, Jubin, today you have three deals that are stalled, two deals that need to close because you committed them already. You're short on pipeline and you have a se- an enablement session at noon. I suggest that you do the following five things and that should take you the eight hours of the day. You want me to go ahead and book your calendar. Can you imagine that that happened to you and then all of a sudden your calendar is booked and then you come in in front of whatever that is, whether it's a VR or your own computer, and then you sort of quickly move from thing to thing with AI all over it. Like it wrote your email, it prepared you for the meeting. As you're running the meeting, all the talking points as they're coming up, you know, they're right there for you. They suggest the names of the company or the people inside the company you need to follow up with. It spits out the documents that you should be sending out to make sure that your deals are closed, but everything is fed to you and all you have to do is apply your human instinct to the AI feed to be able to get that done and then you're done with your day in five hours. That day will come. The matter of question is when. It's not here yet. And the promise is there, right? Like everybody talks about this thing, but the promise is there. We finally have the components to get it over the line. And the problem is, it has been that before LLMs, the dimensionality problem of having to deal with the fact that there's way too many words in the vocabulary for AI to actually make sense of it had not been solved. Now it's solved. So now what? Now you have to rush to make it useful. And that's the part that is where the robot meets the road. How do you make it useful to somebody to solve a real problem that wasn't solved before? And that's what we're all rushing to do. Mm -hmm. And let me take that a step further, just because I'm super fascinated. In this category, let's just take your category. Do you think it's going to expand the pie for everyone? Or do you think that the first and the best to do it will be winner take all? 
That's a really hard question to answer. History has told you that, you know, the winner takes most. Doesn't take all, but takes the great majority. And, and of it. can I interrupt you for a yeah, second? Yeah, yeah. What has disillusioned us over the last few years is that people in second and third place in categories are still building giant businesses. But again, to your point, history has told us that software businesses are generally winner take all and enterprise buyers generally pick best of breed. Correct. And that's why it's winner take all. True. I agree with that. And this is, this is why we're rushing, right? So the question is, what, you, you, the, the opening question is, why am I rushing? I'm yeah. rushing because of that. It's because you can see the future is a winner take all, winner take most. And the moment, the chasm period is one in which you establish whatever it is that we have, the sales execution platform, into the standard. Right now, it's not the standard. Right now, it's what innovators buy to get ahead of the game. But at some point, it needs to become the standard. One of us will make it a standard. Whoever makes it a standard is going to win because that person will be the standard bearer. All the great majority will come in and say, who am I buying? I'm going to buy the standard because the standard has the most application, has the most customer, has the most reviews. IDC recognizes as a saying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But until that happens, nothing happens. One of us has to win and by winning declares the standard and by declaring the standard, you become the winner. That's the rush. Our job as a category is to convince the world that this is needed. Matter of fact, I was just talking to my head of sales and saying, you know, when we talk about differentiation, I think we need to do the solid to the entire market and say, look, before you talk about how we're different than everybody else, let's talk about why you need a sales execution platform. And then just move the ball forward for us and for everybody else. And that's kind of like, that's the burden of the winner. The burden of the winner is they have to move the category forward. Otherwise, you're not a winner. Winning comes with a cost, right? And that if you're not moving the category forward, you're not expanding your time then you're destined to become a small company or to split the pie by three like it happened in marketing automation. So you have to move the category forward and then you have to win at the same time. This is why it's hard. And you have a pretty good comp on the marketing automation side to tell you what happens when it gets split up. That's exactly right. And we don't want to do that. Yeah. As you're crossing the chasm now, you've never done this before. It's almost like the early days of product market fit. I go back to that all over again where you're like relearning. How are you learning? What are you studying? Because the good news for this generation of software businesses is there are comps. Correct. There is a generation before you that has done this before. Right. And there's a lot of resources. And I actually find most of these people are generally pretty willing to talk to you and tell you about it. We've seen this brand new technology. Everyone has an oh shit moment. Yep. You're crossing the chasm. You feel the pressure on the category. You feel like there's an incredible opportunity here. Yeah. What's your instinct to go learn? So, you know, not to be fashionable, but I practiced jujitsu for a while because it's a great sport and it gets you out of the house. Better than golf. And to be really good on the mat, you need two, three moves that you do exceedingly well. The rest of the time, you're just gassing out the opponent. You got five to 10 minutes of locking with somebody, grappling, you're grappling, you're moving, you're, you're defending, et cetera. And you're just gassing the other person out until you got the move. You, the moment you make the move, you boom, make the move and win. So a lot of the time is spent studying and making bets that are not obvious. So what I learned at Amazon is that the way that you grow exponentially is you make a bet so outlandish that nobody sees it. And then you wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, and attack. You know, we were the first one to put an emphasis on security. So as an execution platform, we need to read email. We need to listen to voice calls. People are not going to let us do that unless we're exceedingly secure and certified by everybody and their mother of like ISO 27001 and SOC mm -hmm. 2 Type 2 and like, you know, everybody recognizing just the most secure vault out there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that wasn't obvious early on. A 50-person startup doesn't go through all this pain, but you have to, to be able to sell to enterprises. So we invested in security early on. I hit my hat as a CEO. I put my hat as a CISO. I was a CISO for six months. I learned everything I could about security and boom, do it. That's how I internalize. If the problem is in front of us and the problem is material, I'm the one to solve it. I will never ask anybody to do something I wouldn't do myself. That's not my style of leadership. So the same thing once we started selling. When we started outreach, we used to sell to individuals for two reasons. One, they're easier. And B, I can make anyone part with a credit card number and some money. I can make you give me 10 grand right now. Like this is one of my superpowers is to, to, to just sell a small amount. But then you have to go sell big amounts. So, you know, I became the first enterprise rep. And the same thing, you know, when it comes to AI, like I'm not going to wait for to hire the, the silver bullet who's going to sort me out. No, I, you know, I, I put my title on hold 
and I really dove in into all the different technologies of AI. Like there's a lot of math on AI. I had to rewatch a lot of, you know, Khan Academy to learn about vector math and principal component decomposition. Like there's, there's all these things like that to really grasp what the technology does, you need to understand these underpinnings of the technology, and then you can really apply it to the future, whatever you're, the problem that you're solving for. So you make the long-term bet by learning today and then applying it and being patient. I don't know if that made sense. It makes a ton of sense. You got your master's in computer science at Penn. Mm -hmm. When you're going through all of this right now, does your team feel what you feel? Do you feel the pressure? Because it is one thing for you to go put your title on hold. I like that expression. Dive in. Put your master's degree to use. Yes. Get the markers on the whiteboards here. I keep calling whiteboards. Literally, you wrote on the walls. <laughs> it's like the social network when they wrote on it. <laughs> uh, it's one thing to, for you to go all the way to the mat using a jujitsu term. It's one thing for you to go sell. But you got to get the, I don't know, how many people work here? 500? 400? 1,200. 1,200 people. 1,200 people. You have to get 1,200 people fired up like this understanding this opportunity. Isn't that a weird balance of like, you got to go get this shit done. You got to go understand it. And then you also got to get everybody else on board and understanding and rowing in the same direction Yep. with a technology and a set of forces and a crossing the chasm. We just had a fire alarm outside. I saw your whole team. I saw, <laughs> I saw like, I saw a hundred to 200 people just like standing right in the front of the door. Young people. They've never crossed the chasm before. You've never crossed the chasm yeah, that's before. Right. That's right. You know? Yeah. Does that weigh on you of like, okay, I got to get, it's not 10 people that I got to get fired up and ready to see this thing. I got to get 1,200 people. Right. The trick is not to think about it. If you think about the enormity of what you're doing, it's become so overwhelming and paralyzing that you, your mind, or at least mine, quickly spins into... You know, who the hell are you to do this? The imposter syndrome kicks in hard. So I try not to think about it. So I keep those thoughts at bay. And what I thought, think about more is, so what are we doing today? What is the mission? You know, what is the purpose? And we always talked about our job is to make sure that every single one of the 30 million reps in the world are successful. We are 200,000 in. We got 29,800,000 to go. And we need to make them as fast as we can. It's gonna be in sets of hundreds, maybe in sets of thousands if we close a really large deal. Maybe in sets of 5,000 if we really close a large deal. But that's our job. We wake up and we make reps successful. How are we gonna make it successful? By making sure that we land the product, by making sure that they use it, by making sure that we are applying R&D to whatever the problem is. We are the R&D department of every single rep out there. That's our job, that's our destiny, that's what we do. And as the R&D department for every rep out there, that's what we wake up to do, to serve them. And if you put it in, in that way and that we're out there to serve a rep and the entire organization is built around it, the enormity of the task feels a lot easier. feels a lot less burdensome. Yeah, I think that's well said. On the imposter syndrome thing, how often does that creep in? You know, it creeps in hard when things go badly. <laughs> I mean, like it doesn't creep as well. Give me an example. Like, you know, we lose a deal or we launch a product that didn't really quite stick the landing and now we have to go back. And you ask yourself, like, maybe I'm not the guy for this. Maybe I'm not the guy for this. You know, I got lucky enough by lying all my way through here. Like, do I need to continue to lie or am I the guy for this? I was lucky that early on, one of our leaders used to work for Tony Robbins. And he said, you know, you should just go to UPW and Leash Power Within. And that one show was, was a little transformational that he, he, you know, he helped me develop this sort of like artifact that helped me snap out of it and switch my thought from like, who am I to do this to like, my job here on earth is to do this. And once you've switched that line of thinking, the moment you, you change your thoughts, then your realities are changing with it. But, you know, I have to catch myself. Like, it's a recurrent theme, right? Because coming into the U.S. as an immigrant, you know, with Hispanic accent, most VCs think that you're, you know, you're they associate you with your, with your gardener, not with a Stanford graduate. That's what I have to deal with, you know, building the company. So you have to not let that burden you to move forward. Yeah, I also feel like you kind of need that, like that chip on your shoulder. Oh, don't totally, you? totally, totally. I actually hire for that. What do you hire for? My most successful hires were the ones who, they have to win here because they haven't won in their own terms before. They have won something, 
they have been successful, they have done the job, but they haven't really won on their terms. And one of the values that we espouse is craftsmanship. And craftsmanship means that you love your craft so much that you want a shot, your last shot of building something in your own terms, the right way, the whatever they way, the Juven way. Like I, I have this image in my head of what I want to build as a company and I want to do it and I'm going to do it here because I had never done it before. And you're never given that shot. Here you have that shot. So that chip on your shoulder, having to win and having to win on your own terms is to me the best hires. What does the hashtag TMOD mean? <laughs> 10 million or die. Can you tell the story? Yes. I read a blog post a long time ago that after you get to 10 million, it's harder to die than to stay alive. And my fear every day up until 10 million was we're going to die. We're going to die tomorrow. I don't know how, but we're going to die. And we're going to run out of money. Something is going to go wrong. I don't know if Bonnie told you about the weekend I get married, we had an outage, a substantial outage. And that took my co-founders were at my wedding almost the entire weekend to fix it. At your wedding? At my wedding. Where? In Florence, Italy. <laughs> Dude, there was three dudes in a laptop and me pacing around in departures and the departures lounge in Florence airport. After the, the wedding. The moment after my wedding, we trying to get things up and running. So- Are you serious? I kid you not. And what's your wife doing? She's just like, are you fucking <laughs> Yeah, like, yes, I was <laughs> still mad, but yes. Yeah, but it was a whole situation, right? So like, to me, each of those outages were existential crisis. All right, so we're gonna die. Tonight. How much revenue-ish was the company doing at that point? Like a couple million, maybe This five. was like Series B? Series B, right? it was actually right, right after Series B, like right after Series B. Take a bunch of money, dream the dream. Exactly, and now the cycle's out and we're about to- Your like, co-founders are, you're in the departures lounge in Venice. Yes, yeah, in Florence. In Florence. Yes, and we're fixing a problem. Yeah. So like I, so that, that has always been my fear. Like we're going to die. We're going to die. Like this is just going to die. We're going to die. And I was like, all right, so when do I stop having these panic attacks? And I agree with myself that it's going to be 10 million. And then I went and talked to my co-founders and, you know, my, my management team there. I was like, guys, at 10 million, this stops. Just get to 10 million. Because if we don't get to 10 million, we're going to die. We built this entire edifice around 10 million. So we, it was the first time we took the entire company on a trip. We took the entire company to Cabo. So at the beginning of the year, we said, look, this year, the goal is 10 million. And once we hit 10 million, we're going to take the company to Cabo. And then we'll build everything around this 10 million. So every Friday, we will sit together as a company. Well, you know, we're not a big company. We're like, I don't know, 50 people or so. All the leaders and who, you know, most people in a room that fit about, you know, 30. And we talk about each of the functions and how they help to get to 10 million. And we had a thermometer. Like, you know, when you see the fundraisers on TV, uh -huh. we had a thermometer like where we were every week on the path to 10 million. And we had t-shirts made that said TMO, 10 million or die. And everybody had to wear it. Not everybody had to wear it, but everybody wore it. It was a comfy t-shirt. Including the board. Including the board. <laughs> including the board. Including the, because like it was committed. Like, you know, the best way to get to a goal is to talk about it all the time until you're there. And 10 million for me was an existential number. It was not just a revenue market. It's a difference between a, a viable going concern and not being one. And so I wanted to just stop worrying about dying. And I wanted to talk about more about the growth and other things, but I couldn't do it until we got to 10 million. Like it, it was... A mind block. Yeah. Can I dig in one layer beneath that? If you die, yeah. if the company dies, yeah. then what? Do you go back to 20-year-old Manny coming into the States and being like, am I going to have to take a flight back? <laughs> yeah. Like, wh wh where do you go? Where, does your, where is the, like, that imposter syndrome of I'm not good enough, therefore, here is the worst case? Yeah. What is that worst case? So, you're digging onto something that is pretty personal to me. So, one of my biggest problems for growth is the fact that I think about that too often. And when I think about that, my mind says, I did it once, I can do it again. And I can do it by myself. I can sell, I can code, I can design, I can fundraise, I can do all of it. So I can start from scratch. And that sometimes is not helpful, <laughs> to be frank. Because yes, I can, but that's not where we need to go. And I need to many times to snap out of it. But to actually answer your question, have you seen that movie, um, Unusual Suspects? Mm -hmm. The person you should be most afraid of is the person who has nothing to lose. We were born in a competitive environment. When we were born as outreach, 
there were already two competitors of ours who were much bigger. One of them had raised $30 million. The day that we raised one, maybe two, from a seed investor, the same group of competitors, one raised $30 million from Battery, the other raised $16 million from Andreessen. Here we are raising $2 million from a seed fund that not many people have heard of. And that was us. So we were born in the middle of a war. They're in the Bay, you're in Seattle. They're in the Bay, we're in Seattle. We're ready behind. And that was my ethos to my team, my small team. We got nothing to lose. These guys have millions of dollars of investors from top VC funds. They're going to be afraid every day. We can just come and cut them. We're just going to go after them, take their customers. What we got to lose? They have big salaries. They have big name CEOs. They have big name CROs. They have big search firms doing their thing. Their cost base is expensive. We sleep on air mattresses. I sleep in the office. We are the ones to be afraid of. And that's how this company was built. It's on the back of being aggressive in a hyper-competitive market. So we never not known, not competition. Like we've never been in like sort of like easy breezy, smooth sailing. No, it's always been hard. And I'm kind of proud of that. And you're saying over time, you're at the helm of a large organization now where the us against the world mentality isn't always serving you. Correct. Even though you can't remove it. It's the heart of the company. It is, but you have to move. Look, the motivation for the company has to evolve as you become the larger player. We have to go from being motivated by fear, which is how we started. Then, you know, we had a brief period of being motivated by greed. Look at all the valuation and all this money in the bank and all the things that we can do. And Kinsler can finally put, you know, doors in his house, you know, supposed to like, you know, beads. And to start to be motivated by our customer, to start to be motivated by a sense of duty. And it was during that time when we had that outage that the team, that the VP told us, look, I'm sending my team to lunch and you better have the site up and running. That's when it sort of like flipped for us. It's like, we are responsible for people's livelihoods. We're responsible for the company's revenues. So essentially being motivated from, by fear to be motivated by duty. It's our duty to deliver this to the world. We have been giving these gifts of each other, of this money, of this technology, of the people who work here. It will be an embarrassment if we don't put it to good work. And then eventually be motivated by love, by the love of the customer, the love of what we do, the love of each other, and the love of showing up. You have to make that transition. It's really hard to operate, operating by fear and by remorse and by vengeance. That will, you know, waste you away. Parker at Rippling, he is public about this, but he started the company because it was a basically revenge company for Zenefits and to get back at a few particular people and firms that will not be named. Right. And... He said, look, that got me actually pretty far. But eventually, all of that fades away. Eventually, all of that loses its luster. Now, you need that to get your lift off the ground. I just think that over time, it just becomes about, yeah, you got a responsibility. Like Now you're going public. You got new hills to climb. Right. But I do think that it, there needs to be some maniacal force that gets you off the ground. And away from like the danger, you know? Yeah, I actually put it a different way. What we're doing is not rational. So there needs to be a force that makes you irrational enough to go do what we do. And, you know, revenge, fear, whatever, it's powerful enough and irrational enough to be able to do it. But if you don't switch into a more positive force, you won't be able to attract the talent and scale. You won't be able to attract the customers that you want cross the chasm, attract the mainstream buyers. There's all these other things that need to happen. So you have to switch. You have to make that mental model switch into a different reason to do what you do. And it better be your customers because otherwise it's hard. It better be somebody else. It better be an outside person or a department, some kind of human group to whom you're changing their lives for the better. That inspires. That is a really good artifact for inspiring the rest of the organization to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. Do you still send an email to the company on Fridays? Did I do. You, you do? I do. What, can you tell me more about that email? What is it? Why do you do it? Every Friday? Every Friday. Every Friday. What is it? 
You know, one of the problems that I had, I think I told you that I, because we were all in the same place, we used to do this big circle at the end of the week where we talk about each other's highs and lows. And I think we did it until about 50, maybe 70, 80 people. And then it became too big and too untenable and the office in London couldn't do it and the office in whatever couldn't do it. And I needed a way to tell stories, to tell people what happened, what's going through my mind. And I didn't want to become this mythical like CEO that nobody knows and he's very special and whatever. Like, I don't want to be that guy. Like, I want to be, like, I'm always being open and honest and transparent about everything that we do. Because you build a company to have fun, right? You build a company to be surrounded by great people that inspire you and give you energy. And I wanted that everybody to feel the same thing that I feel as starting the company. So I started the email as a way to tell stories. This is what I learned this week. This is what I, the ball that I moved forward. This is the setback that I had this week. This is what I learned from this other person. I had a, an opportunity of, of meeting with Satya and I was asking him the question, like, how do you turn Microsoft around? Like, what was, what were the actual artifacts that you use? And he said, storytelling. The more stories you tell about the goodness that is inside these walls, the more people feel inspired to do the same. And I felt that that was a very powerful, if it works for Microsoft, it's going to work here. Like, it's, like, who are we to challenge something that is so well done? And that inspired me to continue to do it, but now to continue to do it for the purpose, for the purpose of educating and for the purpose of people knowing how, how am I thinking about things. The email is a way for me to, if I hear rumors or if I hear somebody commenting about something or being on, you know, misaligned with something that we're doing, I use the email as a way to say, like, you know, I heard this. I'm not going to say from whom, but I heard it. And let me tell you how I think about it. It creates for me a, a way for, to initiate a dialogue with the rest of the company and for them to have access to all my thinking. How honest are you in it? I'm as honest as I can. So we, we, How um, vulnerable are you? How much are you talking about, like, these are the things that are keeping me up right now? That's a great question. I think I used to be way more vulnerable and way more open. Why can't you be? Something I've been thinking about a lot, and I'm trying to figure out what's the fine line between inspiring and whatever is coming out of my mouth, whatever I'm saying on the email, needs to be something that moves the organization forward. My job is to move the organization forward. Like not just to be honest and transparent. That is a means to move the organization forward and to accomplish the goal. So many times, something that is keeping me up at night is a transition. I'm going from A to B. Do people know that a transition I'm going through? I think they do. But will everybody be able to stomach it? Will everybody be able to, totally. to deal with it? It's a real question. If I do something that does more damage than good and I'm spending the rest of the week explaining myself, that is counterproductive and I just created a bunch of work that wasn't needed. So that's what holds me back sometimes. We do have office hours every month. You know, I'm open for an hour and I have people join a Zoom or come to my office. And I ask everyone to promise that whatever happens in the room stays in the room. You know, and everybody, you know, I ask for a show of hands. And then I ask them to ask me any questions and I will say whatever is the answer to that question that I know at that moment. Anything. And at that point, I don't hide anything because it's easier for me to get the back and forth and to see some reaction to what I'm saying mm. and to be able to explain. It's the lack of context of the written communication that gives me a little bit of pause sometimes. Yeah, that makes total sense. You memorized everybody's names. Even more than that, you knew people's like families for a while, didn't you? Yeah. How many people? 200. There's a name for it. I'm not intellectual enough to know the name, but it's, there's a name for the breaking point. It's like a tipping point that people say around 120, 130 people yeah. is when you start not knowing people. Correct. So I don't know because I memorized it. So like I forced myself to memorize it. What do you it. mean? I memorized the first, I don't know, 10 or 20. Memorize and, what? Names. Uh, their names, but it's not just memorizing their names. You use what is called mnemonic devices to memorize their names. And then mnemonic devices is usually a story about you. It's easier for your brain to memorize a story, and then that recalls the name. As I was memorizing names, I read Moonwalking with Einstein. And I don't know if you read that book, but it's a book about the memory Olympics. And the book is the story of how these memory Olympians use mnemonic devices to memorize names, like... Roman columns or rooms in a castle. So there's many of the memory devices. So once I read the book, then I developed a mnemonic device to memorize names. And then I had my EA print me cards of people. So I will have 10 to 20 cards with names on the one hand and photos on the other. And I would just practice. I would use, you know, a couple of minutes every day to practice memorization. This takes, you know, five minutes of your day and keeps the memory sharp. And there is nothing more rewarding than hearing somebody else say your name that you don't think that would know your name. Yeah. 
It's really cool. Thank you. Tom Mendoza used to, um, he would go to President's Club. So he went, so Tom Mendoza told me a story. He was like president of NetApp at like a million of ARR. And he told me a story about how their first President's Club was 120 people and their plus ones. And he got on stage at President's Club and thanked every single person and their significant other by name, one by one on stage. Him and his wife studied for days before that. (laughs) And when everybody else was out golfing, he was with their spouses, you know, whatever they were doing, right? hanging out by the pool because he recognized that the real sacrifice that a lot of these people are making are actually hidden. It's their partners. Right. And when you are asking people to give everything they have to make something of themselves at this company, I think there is a quiet sacrifice that generally goes unacknowledged. I agree. You know? I agree. Do you feel that sacrifice personally? Meaning me sacrificing for others or Meaning me, you me sacrificing like the sacrifices that you've had to give to build this company? What you've had to do. Yeah, I do. And, and that's why, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but I asked you, like, would you do it all over again? Only you know what you sacrificed. Yeah. Could be health. Could be a lot of things. Yes. But there's also like kids, you know, right, like there's right, right. a lot of things that you miss in life. Yes. Yes. Inevitable. Do you think about that? I do. I also hope that by me showing the building to my own kids and telling them about it as they you know grow older to understand it, that that becomes inspiring to them too. I always told my kids that as a Hispanic immigrant, my job was to make sure that I am successful so that and show others how to be successful. And that's their job too. As a group, you know, we're behind. So they need to understand how hard this is so that they can go be successful themselves and teach others how to be successful. So that we can meet ourselves and elevate others. That's come with a sacrifice. But the sacrifice is not just parenting or time with the kids. It's things that I don't do. Like I don't watch a lot of TV or I don't, I don't watch any TV for that matter. I don't have a lot of hobbies. I either work or I be with family. And I try to be hyper-present in those two scenarios. And, you know, when I'm with family, I try not to, you know, think about work. And when I'm at work, I'm trying not to think about, about the family. Now, it's cl- clearly impossible to do both. But I try to, very, you know, be very good at compartmentalizing and just doing what's needed in the moment. What's a personal goal you're working towards right now? Do you have one? It's really hard for me to separate work from personal goals. So when you create a, I don't know if you do an annual goal thing for yourself, it's all one big list. You don't delineate between personal and professional. Uh, yeah, pretty much. My personal goal is to get this company to a billion in run rate and whatever it takes to do that. And I don't know what I'm going to do after that, but that's, that's my personal goal. Yeah. Isn't that your professional goal? It is, but I always have this mind that at a billion in run rate, things get easier. And, you know, the scale, you know, allows me to do other things that I'm, that I would like to do. Like, for instance, I realized that with preparation, I can be really good speaker and I can deliver good barn burners to big audiences. I would like to do more of it. I would like to do it, you know, bigger. And I think I'm pretty good at it. And I would like to teach my other executives on doing the same. Those are things that are personal, professional, and, but that are personal goals for me to do more of. For me, you know, it's, it's hard to just spend time doing that because there's so much other things to do and build. Yeah. Of course, we all want to spend more time with our families. Sure. And, and, and so do I. I have, I have very young kids and I want to spend more time with them. So, you know, that is a personal goal too. But like this goal of a billion, mm-hmm. you had that goal at 10 million, mm-hmm. right? Right. Then at 100. Then at 100. Right. Now you're at a couple hundred. Yeah. Now you're crossing the chasm. Yep. Now you're telling me the next goal is a billion. Yep. Are you sure that when you get to a, <laughs> are you sure when you get to a billion, all of a sudden life's going to change? I don't know. I'll tell you, like I have this conversation with a lot of founders. Yep. And, you know, Freddie from Okta was like, Juven, we IPO'd. That was the goal. That right. was the billion. Right. That was his version of your billion. Right. And we partied that night. Woke up Monday, 6 a.m. I'm on a call, customer call with Amia. Nothing changed. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
because reality was still the same. Right. So I'm not like pressing you. I guess I am. I'm just kind of, I wonder. To get to a billion, we have to broaden the number of industries that we sell to. So I get a lot of satisfaction whenever I see outreach being used in a way that was not intended. So just recently, we closed a deal with a brand that you heard of, and it's to deploy outreach on a tablet for retail reps on the floor. And that is a very new use case. When you count the 30 million B2B sales reps in the world, that does not include floor reps in a retail setting. All of a sudden we are in a retail setting. That just gets me going. I'm like, what else am I missing? Like, what else haven't I thought about? Like, so now that it's being used in a tablet on a rep on the floor, what else can we do for them? What, you know, this, this is a use case that we haven't even contemplated. And now the moment you crack that, then, you know, should we be in automotive? And should Lululemon be using outreach on the floor? And then you think about the relationship of that rep to their customer. I don't know if you buy Lululemon or, mm-hmm. or whatever. When you show up to the floor. I think I'm wearing it. Yep, I'm wearing there it. There you go. So like you walk into the floor and like you, you may find you peruse the aisles and whatever. Or you go into the rep and like, what's new? I want a pair of pants. What's, you know, show me the pair of pants. Or you want a, a shirt for X, Y, and Z. And, and you know, show me that. And that person walks you through all the new models and how people use it and whatever. You are developing a relationship with that rep. Why does it have to break the moment you walk out? Why couldn't you create a thread that keeps that rep's you know, conversation happening with you? Even if it's not the same person, but it's the same conversation. That doesn't happen yet. Why it doesn't happen yet? I don't know. Cars are about to drive themselves and we can maintain a conversation between a rep in the store and that person that walked out. Like, you see what I mean? Like there's all these gaps that are just glaring that nobody's solving. And I'm like, that's the things that gets me excited. So what, what's going to happen at a billion is that I'm hoping that I'm done finding things out and now we're just at scaling, right? We have found, we have ironed out all the different verticals and you know, then it's just building on top of it. And that may be a different job than what we're doing right now. But isn't this your life's calling? Can you imagine on your LinkedIn, it's saying Manny Medina, CEO of some other company besides outreach? Yeah, Seriously, I, I, can you imagine that? I can't. I don't know what else will we doing if I'm not doing this. I mean, you're right. And I would struggle to think about what I do if I'm not doing this. So, And put another way, could you imagine someone else, your imposter syndrome has let you imagine it, but could you imagine someone else running the company? That I can imagine. Because that's the only way you're ever, in my opinion, going to actually have space. Yeah, but you know what's really interesting? When we were really early, the running joke here was that the reason I'm CEO is because all the other jobs were taken. Four of us get together and be like, all right, Gordon is doing back-end development. Wes is doing front-end development. Andrew's doing design. So all the jobs are taken. Okay, so I guess I'm doing whatever else is left which is, you know, sales, fundraising, making sure that there is lunch and that we have an office and that, you know, somebody signs a CEO. It was the worst job in the world. You know, it happens to get better over time, but the early CEO thing, I'm like, we can take turns being CEO. How about I do a little bit of front-end development? How about you do some sales for a while and I'll do something else? You know what I mean? Yeah. It was this joke of like, CEO is his job that you sort of like, I'm happy to take a turn doing something else. Yeah. This is why like my LinkedIn profile has changed to chief information security officer for six months. And if you look for the CEO of outreach, there was no one on LinkedIn that was a CEO of outreach because I was not doing that job. And I figure nobody will die while I go figure the security problem out. And, you know, turns out nobody did. Yeah. And business continued going. I try not to think myself as a CEO. I try to think myself as a team member that is doing something useful. You know, in some way, I'm just thinking about this now. Feel free to disagree with me. But maybe a large part why so many CEOs, founder CEOs that I talk to are mostly technical in nature. And they've been so far removed from the actual hands-on keyboard that all this AI stuff actually gets you back to some of the things like you got your PhD <laughs> master's. your master's in computer science from Wharton yeah. like in some ways you're like an accidental CEO like you got stuck in this role and you're like wait a second can I, I want to get hands on keyboard and now you're hundreds of millions of people revenue later with all these people again I'm just thinking about this for the first time now but I'm like gosh maybe this is a small parcel why some of these founders are so excited to get back this is an excuse to get back to the technology. I agree. Like it's the nerd coming back out it's again. It's true. And I, I like to do two things. I like to either nerd out with my coworkers or I like to nerd out with my customers. And that's a very rewarding job. Like the CEO thing gets, you know, grinding after a while. Yeah. And yeah, so may, maybe that's just it. Is that the not being a CEO allows me to do the things that I really care about. I, I was talking to another CEO at, a, at the Allen & Company conference and he just appointed a CEO and he's going to take chairman. 
And I was like, what is that about? Like, you can just peace out. Like, you already made your money. Why don't you stop doing whatever you're doing? I'm like, I actually like what I do. I just don't like the CEO gig. I like the tech. I like building. I like imagining. I just don't like this other stuff that comes with being a CEO. And there's a lot, to, lot of truth to that. So, you know, I give you the billion number because that's a, a big round number at which in the public market, you become a large cap. The trading float is enough for, you know, institutional investors to buy you. You can be part of grandma's retirement portfolio. You're a thing. You're part of the economic fabric of America. So that's why I think of a billion as a great milestone for me to say I contribute to this economy and maybe I'll go back to selling or coding or product management or whatever. But I haven't thought that through, to be frank. I totally. just think that, that that's a milestone for me to get to. Would you do anything over? If you had one mulligan, mm. is there anything you take back? I would recognize that the chasm crossing had to be done. So the problem with operating in the system as opposed to on the system is that you don't recognize the patterns of the stuff that is about to hit you. And we didn't discuss this at the very beginning. The second way that I learned is to talk to a lot of people. Talk to a lot of other CEOs. Listen to your podcast, for instance, of other CEOs and see what they have done. The problem, though, is their experience is in one segment. Mm -hmm. And the majority of them, the scale, is in the segment post-chasm crossing. So, for instance, the CEO of Stripe was talking about Tornado Companies. Yeah, Clayville. Yeah, Clayville. So, Tornado Companies is well into the majority, well into scale. Yeah. Like, of course, I want that job. Like, it's a great job to have. Yeah. But it's the other shit that is hard, right? Like, the, the, you know, getting yeah. into the innovators, into the early adopters, crossing the chasm, you know, going through the period of the early majority, getting the pragmatists to, adopt, to love you, and then you're in tornado, and that's great. But it's the other stuff. And so when you hear advice, the advice is in context of where you are in the technology adoption curve. So you always have to figure out, like, where exactly are you in that curve? And I wish I would have recognized that we had to get chasm crossing maybe a year, maybe two earlier, so that we can start evangelizing earlier on, so that by now we'll be done crossing the chasm, we'll be in that tornado period in which you know, you're a standard and you're just growing into the standard. Do you think multi-product is the tip of the spear to crossing the chasm earlier and more effectively? I think Geoffrey Moore has a concept called a complete product. And the thing that you have to recognize earlier as you start crossing the chasm is you have to go back one or two years into the future, see what the pragmatists are needing, and you need to start building that out earlier. And it's all the boring shit, security, governance, administrative things, logs, integration points, systems that you've never heard before, things of that nature. You have to put in the time and effort to build it. The problem is that technology has come so quickly, so fast, that if you don't get your game on in AI right now and you don't understand how to translate whatever data you have, fit into the small mouth of an LLM and produce magic on the other end, you're screwed. So now you have to do the chasm crossing and go back to the early adopter curve of like all this new AI stuff. So you're not going to be disrupted by some two kids into a garage that just came out with something that's going to blow you out of the water. Yeah. You have a double whammy. If I were to do it again, I wish I would have read this before. I wish I would have met somebody who has done crossing the chasm and would have told me, do this and do this and do this and do this and make sure that you start on this earlier and you don't you know, swim in the current of early adopter that is going to get you all the way to 200 million. You think you're winning. When in reality, you're coming to the end of the cliff. You need to get to the crossing crossing and get, start getting the pragmatists in, the large companies, the IT departments, the operations person who run global organizations that you know, don't want to hear you. Like All those things need to be addressed earlier so that you can shoot your stream, yourself upstream. What do you think is the worst advice that people overly give to for startups? Something that pisses you off. When you hear it on podcasts or you read about it, you're like, that's terrible advice. Oh my God, I have a catalog with us. I'm trying to figure out where, which one to give Or you. someone that gave you, don't tell the person, but like advice that you were like, man, that was really bad so advice. The, so the worst advice is when hiring an executive, find somebody who's been there, done that. The person who's been there, done that, has already been there and done that. So even if they lose at your company, they don't care because they've already been there and done that. You know, you don't hire for being there and done that. You hire for the potential to be there and done that. For the one who came short of being there and done that because they have been punched in the mouth by life and they want to get back at life and really punch through. And for them, this is their chance. So I'd much rather hire somebody who's not been there and done that, have come close and fail because they're going to make damn sure that this is the being there and done that. The being there and done that don't have the t energy in the tank most of the time because they've already been there and done that. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. What's the best piece of advice someone's given you? 
about startups, about outreach? What's one that's just stuck with you? And maybe they haven't given it to you. Maybe you heard it somewhere. Maybe you read it somewhere. Maybe you stole it from someone in a speech. You know, it wasn't until I codify that energy is a thing. You can't really explain what's energy, but I hire for it. And let me, let me explain it. That you may have quiet energy. You may have loud energy like me. You be expressive. But always hire for energy. Define what that person's energy is and how they're adding to the energy pool because there are people who subtract from the energy pool and you don't want to hire any of those. A company lives on energy. And the way that the energy works is the energy balance is meaning when you're down because you got hit by life or you got hit by a bad deal, you had an argument at home or whatever that is, you need the energy around you to lift you. So you need to be always be looking for the average energy of the people around you and make sure that that is going up and to the right as you bring in new team members so that the energy of the team as a whole goes up. And it sounds airy-fairy, but it's real. Like you can feel somebody else's energy when they're upset, when they're down. And having somebody that can lift you when you're up is incredibly important when you're in a startup journey because you will have downs. It's kind of a motorcycle. It's not if you're going to fall, it's when you're going to fall. You will have downs that will be hard. Life will punch you in the face. You will have many setbacks. And if you don't have a group around you that have energy to lift you, it's going to be a tough slog. I think it's a great place for us to wrap. Are there any key roles that you're hiring for? Anything that you want to shout out? We are hiring in sales. We are hiring for experienced sellers in our mid-market and enterprise team. So if you are an enterprise seller and want to make a lot of money, this is the place to be. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? I think of your being willing to do what most people won't. Manny Medina, thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.